Let us pray. Hallelujah, hallelujah to God who is on high. All creation lifts its voice and we join our voices with all that has been made. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are enthroned above. We thank you that you are above all earthly powers, above all empires, above all kingdoms, above all principalities, that you rule in absolute majesty. For this we give you our praise. And we offer our lives as sacrifices to your glory. But we know that it doesn't end there. And that seeing you on high is not enough. We know that we need to live the reality day by day of the kingdom that you are establishing through our lives and through our communities. So give us eyes which are fixed not only on heaven, but also on the earth. May we learn to see you in the poor. May we learn to see you in those who are not quite like us. May we learn to recognise that you are present in and through all things. And from this, give us a commitment to justice, a commitment to peace, a commitment to reconciliation, that the kingdom which begins from the throne in heaven might take shape in the reality of our lives and our world. And forgive us for those times where we take our eyes away from this kingdom. Forgive us where our lives do not embody the values that we so often say we believe in. Forgive us, renew us, restore us, and recommission us for the work of bringing your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Our first reading is from chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, the scroll and the lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. 
Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, living creatures and elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the angels fell down and worshipped. And now our second reading, you've guessed, from chapter 6 in Revelation. The seven seals. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse, and its rider had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people would slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quarter of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, come. I looked and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, famine and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I heard under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. Then he opened the sixth seal. I looked and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig trees dropped its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the magnates and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Amen. Our third reading, surprise, is chapter 7. The 144,000 Israel of Israel are sealed. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, 
holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun and having the seal of the living God. He called with a loud voice, the four angels who had been given the power to damage earth and sea, saying, do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with the seal on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude, and no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of, it, of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. I've long held that uh, that little phrase, there is silence in heaven for half an hour, is the perfect reason why quiet days are a bad idea. Half an hour of quiet I can just about cope with. The idea of a day or a week, you're kidding. Anyway, um, back to uh, what we're hoping to do today. Uh, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, as we've been introducing the book of Revelation, and if you weren't here, uh, sermons are available uh, as podcasts or scripts from our website, um, we've seen how John carefully constructed the first four chapters of the book of Revelation to kind of draw those who heard it being read, those who attended the seven churches of Asia Minor, he wrote it to draw them into his visionary world. Uh, chapters one to four are the kind of book of Revelation's equivalent of uh, the voiceover from Picard at the beginning of a Star Trek episode going, Stardate 457.3. It introduces you to the strange new world that you're going to go to in your imagination. And what you're going to find when you get there is that there's all these beasts and monsters and aliens and things, but they all look a little bit like things you recognise from the real world. That's how science fiction works. That's how the book of Revelation works. For more on that, see the last couple of sermons. So, we've gone with John into the heavenly world. We've gone through the open door into the heavens. 
And in the, the next three chapters, the three chapters for today, chapters five to seven, John continues his task of inviting his readers uh, to critique their world because he's continually wanting them to learn to see things from heaven's perspective. So John's already shown them the heavenly alternative to the idolatrous power claims of the Roman Empire. He's already given them this vision of one seated on the throne in heaven as the divine antidote to the emperor seated on a throne in Rome. And in the images surrounding the opening of these seven seals, which we meet in our reading for today, John deconstructs still further the images of empire with which those in his seven churches he's writing to would have been surrounded day in and day out. So, this scroll, what's this about? Uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, John says that he can see a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And it's described as having writing on both sides and then being kind of rolled up and sealed with seven kind of wax seals. Drawing on imagery here from the Old Testament books of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it becomes clear that this scroll has an important message that somehow needs to be read and heard. There's a bit of tension and drama built here. We want to know what's on the scroll the readers are going. And John's going, oh yeah, but you know, there's nobody who can open the scroll, so we're not going to know what's on the scroll. The links to the Old Testament, which we may be less familiar with, but I'm sure John's first readers would have known, give us a clue as to the contents of this scroll. In the book of Jeremiah, there are two scrolls, one of which calls on the people of God to repent, and the other one proclaims judgment against evil. And John combines these two, a scroll calling people to repentance and a scroll proclaiming judgment on evil. He fuses these images together to give in the book of Revelation one scroll that does both of these. On the one hand, it calls people to repentance, and on the other hand, it also proclaims judgment against the satanic forces of empire that it says will not be allowed to continue unchecked forever. And in this, I think what John is trying to do is he's trying to help his audience, the people who would have heard his book being read, he's trying to help them distance themselves from the dominant culture in which they live, to begin to share with him his prophetic perspective of the inevitability of judgment on all those who persist in allying themselves with the satanic empire. And I sometimes wonder what it would be like for us to hear this, an invitation to distance ourselves from the dominant culture around us that's continually trying to get us to compromise and to realise that that way leads to all sorts of hellish things. Well, it's not only Jeremiah who has a scroll or two in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, John also has in mind another scroll from Ezekiel. Uh, in Ezekiel, he receives a scroll from the divine hand. And God kind of reaches down and gives him a scroll, and he sees writing on both sides of it, proclaiming words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And Ezekiel, like John, is then instructed to eat the scroll and to proclaim the contents to Israel, finding the scroll as sweet as honey in his mouth. John clearly borrows that image of receiving a scroll from God and then eating it. But 
John says it's not only sweet as honey in his mouth. He says it's bitter when it hits his stomach. And I think there's something of a tension here about this message that this scroll is bringing into being. On the one hand, it's a message of sweetness and gospel and grace and forgiveness. And on the other hand, it's a message of great suffering for those who will try and live it into being. And that's what makes John sick. Those who hear the message of the scroll revealed through the text of the apocalypse are being warned that the glory of the gospel is inextricably coupled with suffering and persecution. Those whom John is leading into the visions of heaven will face bitterness on the earth as the inevitable counterpart to partaking of the sweetness of his vision. So when John first encounters this scroll, he's immediately curious to its contents, and when it appears no one can be found who's worthy to break open its seals, he begins to weep bitterly. However, it soon becomes clear that Jesus, who at this point is dressed up as a lamb, see last week for how characters keep putting on different costumes, uh, that Jesus is able to open the seals. And his qualification for being able to start breaking open these wax seals on this scroll are his sacrificial death and his resurrection. That's kind of the bulk of chapter 5. Then there are three hymns of praise offered to the Lamb, which is the image of Jesus at this point. So the Lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne, and each of these hymns is offered by an increasing number of singers. And I think this is really significant. The singing originates with the people of God worshipping before the throne. But then it kind of expands throughout the whole of the heavenly realm as every creature in the heavens is singing. But then it expands again to encompass every creature on the earth, every creature in the underworld. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 5, absolutely everything, the church, the heavenly voices above, and every voice on the earth are singing praise to the Lamb. And there's some important theology going on here. Because from an earthly perspective, the worship of Jesus is a bit naff. It's a handful of faithful saints in churches, probably singing quite badly some songs. It's just futile. What, what is this about? Now, I mean, we sing brilliantly here, and we've got an amazing pipe organ. But we're, what, a handful of us singing praises, and some of us don't like the hymns, and some of us do, and some of us don't like the modern stuff, and some of us do. And Goodness me. When seen from heaven's perspective, this is the beginning of something tremendous. The worship offered by the saints, those gathered in the churches, reverberates throughout creation drawing all beings, even those already in the underworld, into the worship of the risen Christ. We may think singing hymns is a bit boring or singing modern songs is a bit cliched or whatever it is that we think, but however we do it, the message of Revelation is that when seen from heaven's perspective, the faithful worship of the few is a world-transforming thing. The hymns of worship that John records are not songs to try and make Jesus feel good about himself. 
Do you get that sometimes when you sing hymns? You think, well, what are we doing here? Are we just like trying to make Jesus feel happy or something? I, I don't know. What's the point of this? The hymns of worship that we find in the book of Revelation are actually about reversing the human tendency to direct worship anywhere else. Because if you are proclaiming Christ as worthy, you're not proclaiming the emperor as worthy. If you're proclaiming Christ as Lord, you're not proclaiming the emperor as Lord. Power is drawn away from whatever earthly throne may have your allegiance. In our day and age, it may not be the emperor on the throne in Rome, but the spirit of that empire still lives on. There are things that draw us away from the worship of God. There are things that we give our allegiance to. You know what they are in your life, and it'll be different for different ones of us. When we name Jesus as Lord and Jesus as worthy, we recenter ourselves and we recenter creation. So much so that the very act of worship itself can become a politically subversive act. What does it mean to say that King Jesus is absolute in a way that Queen Elizabeth is not? What does it mean to say that King Jesus is absolute in a way that no other claim to power is? This can get you into a lot of trouble. It's a politically subversive act to worship Jesus. It can take you on marches. It can take you holding placards. It can take you to campaigning. It can take you to Sierra Leone to do battle with powers of poverty. You can die serving Jesus. It's sweet, but it's bitter. It's glorious, but it's revolutionary. Then John kind of repeats himself, because he does. The song offered by the 24 elders and the four living creatures says much the same again, but begins to introduce a theme that's recurrent through the book of Revelation. The Lamb is praised for ransoming people from every tribe and language and people and nation, for making them all to be a kingdom and priests serving our God. This is no parochial vision. This is not just... God for here and now in our congregation or in Asia Minor for their congregation. This is the God of the whole earth. If your vision of God does not encompass everybody and everything, then your vision of God is too small. And this is presented by John as a fulfilment of the promise in the Old Testament that God made through Moses. So if you remember your Old Testament and the book of Exodus... Uh, after Moses led the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt out into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years before going into the promised land, Moses uh, reports the promise of God. You shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And John takes this Old Testament image of the Exodus and reworks it to depict a new Exodus of God's people in his time breaking free from their enslavement to the forces of the Roman Empire. And this image of new exodus helps those in John's churches gain a kind of theological understanding of their role within the overall scheme of salvation history. Just as the people of Israel, of old, journeyed from slavery through wilderness to the promised land, so the people of the Lamb in John's time, and by extension in our time, 
are depicted as undertaking their own journey from slavery through wilderness to promised land. Do you know Jesus as your Lord? If you do, then you have been released from slavery to the oppressive powers of sin and death. Are we yet in promised land? No, we're not. We are wandering in the wilderness of the world. We are making our own exodus. However, this image isn't just about showing the saints escaping from the current evil age and fleeing to a place where they can live happily ever after. People have done that with the book of Revelation, and I think they're wrong. I don't think there's any rapture theology here, for those of you who've come across that before. Rather, just as the purpose of the gift of the promised land to Israel was to bring the blessing of God to all nations, so the promise of the new creation of Revelation is given with the intent of drawing all nations into blessing. The promised land was never just for the people of Israel. It was the base from which good news would go to all people. You think about the promise made to Abraham. Your descendants shall be as numerous as the sands of the sea. They shall be an uncountable multitude. This is fulfilled in and through the Christian church, the followers of the Lamb. In a sense, the whole theological scheme of Revelation is thus complete by the end of chapter 5. We could just draw a line under it at that point and say, jolly good, we're finished. We've started with the church, we've gone up into heaven, we've sung with the saints above, we've sung with all of creation, the whole of creation is singing, job done. But John then rewinds, and he goes into chapter 6 to revisit the process where the church's faithful witness to and worship of their risen Lord results in the declaration of universal praise. And he does this through the sequence of seal openings as the scroll is kind of slowly broken open and unraveled. And here we begin to get an exploration of the spiritual battle that exists between the followers of the Lamb on the one hand and the forces of evil on the other. If you're going to wander through the wilderness of the world, it's not going to be easy. There's battles to be fought along the way. And this sequence of seven seal openings rehearses once again this overall theological scheme of the apocalypse. Now, I found it a bit uh, difficult to follow on occasions. The book of Revelation is not a straightforward book. So I've created a little table that you may find a helpful summary of what happens as each seal is opened by uh, the lamb that is at this point looking a little bit like Jesus. So I'm going to leave that up. I'm just going to kind of briefly talk through it. In the midst of all the stuff that follows, it's important to remember that according to John, everything which happens on the earth is ultimately within the control of the one seated on the throne in heaven. It all begins with Jesus sent into the world to conquer evil and death. So this is the rider on the white horse, the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, it may surprise you uh, to see here that I'm suggesting that the rider uh, of the, the first rider of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is actually Jesus. If you know your book of Revelation through culture, you know that these are four evil riders. Well, if you read the text, I think it's more likely to be Jesus. Jesus comes on again in chapter 17, riding a white horse, looking exactly like he does here. Uh, I think the first one is Jesus. And this is important because it means that it begins with Jesus and the gospel coming into the world to conquer evil and death. Then the second and third and fourth riders uh, come out as the second, third and fourth seals are broken. And they represent the state of the earth as it is 
under the lordship of the satanic empire. War and injustice pave the way for the progression of death and despair through the world. So the world as it is, the world to which Christ comes on his white horse, is a world dominated by the red horse of death, the black horse of famine, the green horse, sorry, the red horse of war, the black horse of famine, the green horse of death. I mean, in Sierra Leone, we've just heard, these riders are there. They're killing children through war and famine. And this is the world to which Christ comes. It's in this context that John hears the forlorn cries of the martyrs, articulating the cry of the suffering church down the ages. How long, O Lord, will it be, they cry from under the altar, before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? You can hear those who have been martyred for their faith down the centuries echoing that, can't you? How long, O Lord, must we wait? How long, O Lord, must the church suffer? The answer, as it turns out, is not very long at all, because the judgment of the Lamb on the evil of the world starts to become apparent in the scenes of cosmic catastrophe that follow the opening of the sixth seal. The skies rolled back to expose the earth to the heavenly gaze. And the message to those in John's churches here is clear. The reign of war and injustice and death is not eternal. And when viewed from heaven's perspective, all the pretensions of the satanic empire are seen to be fragile and vulnerable. Assurance is given that the prayers of the martyrs will not remain unanswered, that evil will not be allowed to endure into eternity. Then there's an interlude during which the faithful people of God are sealed on the forehead and numbered. You remember I said last week that the four basic actors of Revelation come on and off the set wearing different costumes at different points. Well, here we encounter one of those actors, the church, seen from heaven's perspective as 144,000 people secure before the throne of God. For those in John's churches facing famine and war and death, the, the assurance is that from heaven's point of view, they're safe before the throne. And this provides a strong pastoral message of comfort. It, you might feel fragile, you might feel threatened, but you are safe before the throne of God. I could do a whole sermon, by the way, on who are the, where does the image of the 144,000 male virgins come from. Uh, we could have a comparison with the way in which the Jehovah's Witnesses interpret it. If you've ever been caught on the doorstep, you'll probably have been asked about this. Uh, just to say, the whole thing about being male virgins, do you remember there was a football manager a few years ago who, who wouldn't let his players um, sleep with their wives and girlfriends uh, the night before a match? That's nothing new. That was the way soldiers used to be in the ancient world. You don't weaken yourself uh, by staying up all night with your wife the night before you fight a battle. The image here is of the people of God ready, arrayed like an army for the battle in the world, not weakened in any way. It's a problematic image from a, a gender-critical perspective. I'm not going to spend a long time on it now, but just noting probably what's going on there for John. There are a number of problematic images from a gender-critical perspective. You wait till we get to the Whore of Babylon in a couple of months' time. Anyway, not digressing too much. The seventh seal, when it's opened, takes the reader back to the praise of 
the end of chapter 5, except rather than every creature crying out in praise, every creature is instead silenced. The half hour of silence in heaven prepares the way for the noise of the seven trumpet blasts that follow. And once again, we get the images of judgment. I mentioned the 144,000 as an image for the church. That's the number John hears. But when he sees the church, they look very different. After this, I looked and there was a great multitude no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. John hears a finite number, but he sees an uncountable number from every nation. It seems that according to John, God's plan for the salvation of the world extends far beyond just those who sign up to follow Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. One of the great errors of the church down the centuries is that we think it's only us. And it's not only us. Because of the witness that we give, it's everyone. The book of Revelation has a universal vision of salvation. It shows the love of God expressed in Jesus as being universal in its reach and scope. So often churches spend so much of their time defining who's in and who's out. What if the good news of the gospel is that everyone is in? What if all things, all people, all creatures under heaven fall within the universal redeeming and forgiving love of God? There is an inherent tension present within the book of Revelation between images such as this, which seem to indicate a universal acceptance of the Lordship of Christ as the end result of the faithful witness of the church, and other images which indicate judgment on those forces that remain in opposition to the kingdom of Christ. And I think it's worth contemplating this tension. Does God judge evil? Yes, absolutely. Evil and all its works have no place within God's eternity. Does God's love encompass all? Yes, absolutely. How can both of these be true? Because of the faithful witness of those who follow the Lamb to the truth that the empire is not ultimate and that the kingdom of God is breaking into human history to bring all things and all lives and all people to their good conclusion within the love of God. A moment, but not half an hour, of silence. Our intercessions today are going to focus on Christian Aid's work in Sierra Leone. And we start with a lament. How long, O oh Lord? How long will childbirth be something to be feared? Will parents weep with grief rather than joy? Will fathers mourn the loss of a mother? Will sisters live with the pain of what could have been? How long, O oh Lord? How long will women and girls have to walk long distances to get firewood, education, water, food, or to get to the nearest health centre to give birth? 
if they make it in time. How long, O oh Lord? How long until the cry of a newborn baby fills the air with the joy that it should, rather than filling hearts with worries of another hungry mouth to feed? Or worse, is silent because of inadequate health care, because the money for health is still paying off debt. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Today, at the beginning of Christian Aid Week, we pray for the mothers in Sierra Leone, where 10 women every day die from giving birth. We pray for the health of the mothers and the safe delivery of their babies. We think of the mother in particular whom we saw, Tene, who has experienced great sorrow. We ask that her dream of a new local health centre comes true, so that other mothers do not have to walk long distances in labour. We pray for Christian Aid's partners in Sierra Leone, that they can continue their work to train and equip midwives and healthcare workers, to improve health services and empower the communities they serve. We pray that our Chancellor of the Exchequer can influence the International Monetary Fund to write off the debts that Sierra Leone incurred when fighting the Ebola crisis in 2014. We ask too that such major international financial bodies will take urgent action to prevent new debt crises in developing countries and offer appropriate support to tackle them effectively if they do arise. We pray for the young girls for whom education is key to their future, that schools may be adequately funded and enough teachers trained, that girls may be able to attend school and not be taken out to be married off early that they may benefit from what they learn there and in due time influence their own children and grandchildren. We give thanks for Christian Aid supporters and churches across the UK and Ireland who give generously and volunteer their time to bring new life and hope to some of the world's poorest people. We ask that you will accompany them, particularly during this Christian Aid Week giving them the courage and strength to go out, telling others about the needs in Sierra Leone and fundraising to meet these needs. And we pray for ourselves, that we may recognize our part in supporting the work of Christian Aid and other such agencies. In your name, we pray all these things. Amen.